job teachers. As you can tell from my voice, something's been going on. That's right. I recently went to Improv Utopia East Camp, uh, where I always have a wonderful time. And this time I was lucky enough to sit down with Lewis Kornfeld, who was one of the teachers at camp. Lewis began improvising way back in 2003, when both his phone and online presence were at the forefront of millennium culture. He's a proud member of the Magnet Theater and has uh, been everything from a performer, intern, house manager, and member of the Boss Megawatt Director and, for the past 12 years, teacher of improvisation. You can also find Lewis uh, as an award-winning writer and actor who is routinely featured on the Truth Podcast. You can see him performing every Sunday night with Rick Andrews and Kornfeld and Andrews. He also thinks you're doing great. Sitting down with Lewis was awesome. The noise on this, I tried to clean it out as much as possible, but you can tell there's a lot of cicadas going on. There's also some sort of kayak race going on. So wade through it, take a listen, and as always, thank you so much for listening to The Improv Teacher. Do you remember the first class you ever taught? Uh, yeah, um, yes. I taught, well, I, when I, uh, I was trained by Armando Diaz, so we did an eight-week class together that started with, um, I would run warm-ups, and then he would run the rest of the class, and then we would debrief afterwards, and he would kind of take me through his thought process, and then as the weeks went on, he would hand more and more of the class over to me until, by the end, I was running the whole thing and he was kind of watching me so that was my very first class and then um, my first class by myself uh, I may not remember it specifically I might be conflating like two or three classes okay. early on yeah but I have like a rough I remember more or less how it felt at the beginning okay with that class with Armando were the students already somewhat knowledgeable about improv and knew that like there was going to be this transition of Armando to the TA uh, kind of thing when they went into that class or it was just like a regular like level two class kind yeah, of thing I think most people in that class were pretty knowledgeable okay. I, m- my memory is that most people already had a little bit of experience okay. doing classes elsewhere plus it was a level two class so they at least like had, had the basics down right um, and they must have known that we were transitioning okay. I don't remember how it was sold to them but they, they must have known that it was a team talk class because right. we wouldn't we wouldn't surprise anybody like that. Right. And at Magnet, you guys actually have, like, a sort of train-the-trainer program, don't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. yeah. It, initially, it used to be if you if you were hired as a teacher, Armando would uh, kind of guide you, and you would shadow him and kind of learn his process. Now Rick Andrews has taken that over, okay. and, and he kind of oversees everybody. Okay. Yeah. And did you come to teaching because it was one of those things of, like, oh, I'm doing improv, but it doesn't pay money? <laughs> or was it, like, I want to be sharing this with the world? Or a little bit of both. Um, no, I, I I was asked to teach. Oh, um, oh, great! And so that that um, I've been coaching for a little while. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's a little bit arrogant, but I, I had kind of like always felt like I would be a good coach. Um, and it didn't really occur to me to teach. I, I I just sort of felt like I think I'm better at this than a lot of the people who are coaching me. Um, or, 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 we're at camp, so uh, that that's there's apparently some kayak races oh, going cool. on or something. Oh, so there are, yeah. Yeah, there, there they go. Yellow boats in the lead. Um, yeah, I, I remember sort of feeling like, uh, oh, capsized already? 
<laughs> right out of the gate. That's not even... They're not even away from the dock yet, and he capsized. Yellow boat's still on the lead. That's a tough one. <laughs> Purple boat's doing pretty good, though. Yeah, I, I, I thought I would be a good coach. And um, then Armando approached me and asked if I would be interested in teaching classes. Um, and I jumped at the chance. Yeah. Back then... You know, it felt like a real privilege because there weren't that many people teaching. Right. And um, it, it was, uh, I, w- I was very much in awe of Armando. Ar- Armando was a real important teacher for me. Yeah. So having him reach out and ask me to teach felt like, um, it was like one of the highlights of, right. of it, it felt like an accomplishment. Yeah, I can um, understand that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the money, yeah, it was sort of like a second. The money was like nice, but I was never really thinking like, right. if I was occupied with trying to make money, I would be doing something older than teaching improv. <laughs> actually pursue my writing or something right like yeah, yeah, yeah. there's more money in that than yeah. doing this it's a labor of love right sure. um so i know especially like in new york and la sort of the stepping stones is i'd go through classes i feel like i have a voice and something to say so i'll start coaching some teams mm-hmm. and then i lead into teaching i'm not sure as i kind of go through my own process that a good coach automatically translates to a good teacher. Do you no, know? no, definitely not. Why do you... I, I'm always trying to think about, like, what the differences is and why I'm not sold on that idea. Um, I think that... Um, so you have performers, coaches, and teachers. I think a lot of uh, performers will get into coaching as a way to make a little extra cash and because um, people will see them play and will like how they play and will want to get guidance from them and so you know you, you take the job but I think a lot of performers sort of intuitively know what they're doing but don't know how to translate it that right. into language um, uh, I think it's a different skill set not only to be articulate enough um, to break down an idea and communicate an idea but to also be perceptive enough to kind of see where people are at and what they need and kind of intuit what they're feeling and then be able to not only make up a lesson plan built around their needs but also be able to very quickly on the fly adjust your lesson plan to kind of speak to what's happening in the room it, there's 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 a little bit of like an obsessiveness about that that I think a lot of performers don't have if you were to ask them how they do what they do they would give really frustrating answers yeah. I don't know I was playing the game I don't know right um, so, like, I, I know I had a lot of coaches early on who you would just hear the same thing from them over and over and over again. Play the game more. Yes, and more. This, like, really generic stuff. And it wasn't because they were bad, bad at improv. They just couldn't articulate what their experience was. So that's one thing. The other thing is I think a lot of coaches will either have, like, a pet way of playing that they enjoy or have, like, an idea of, like, what good improv looks like and their style of coaching will be to um, give you an exercise or two have you play a form and then give you notes for an hour about how you could have done it in a way that got you closer to their kind of preconceived image of, of what they have in mind of a show you're never going to do again yeah <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, whereas I think a really good teacher yeah a really good teacher sort of has I don't think you'd be a really good teacher without having a, a kind of um, standard of excellence in your mind. You have to have something on the horizon that you're aiming for. I don't think it's good enough to just be, oh, we want it to be funny or we want it to be playful or whatever. I think you have to kind of know 
what that line is where where you know work is subpar below that line. But I also think that a really good teacher doesn't spend their time um, trying to get their students to um, uh, become the image that the teacher has. I think a really good teacher pays close attention to their students, notices what gifts they have, and and works hard to find ways to help to bring those gifts to the surface. And and sometimes that means encouragement and sometimes it means just being very attentive to whatever's blocking their ability to, to be themselves and finding ways to break up those blocks but I, I think that whereas like a decent coach will be like this is what a Harold could look like and they'll just give you notes to get you closer to that Harold right. a really good teacher holds on to that image of what it should look like a little bit more loosely it's a little bit more like true north for them mm-hmm. but you sort of have a sense that we're never really going north we just sort of know that this gives me direction right you know what I mean it's not like I'm going to the north pole I just know where I am all the time because I have my sense of true north right now, within that context, my goal is to um, uh, encourage you and invite you and empower you to, to be the most of yourself that you can be while you're doing this stuff. Yeah, I have, um, um, so the way we do it is because it's a smaller community, uh, people get to teach much sooner than they would in the larger communities, mm-hmm. uh, just the nature of how it is. But what they have to do is sort of the same thing of um, I actually run train the trainer workshops for people who are that I'm like oh that person has a love of improv and is empathetic Mm -hmm. like those two things I'm like cool now we can hone the teaching part of it Mm -hmm. and so they have to go through a series of workshops that I right now that I'm facilitating and then um and, you know, we go over things like instructional design and the types of different teaching methods there are. And then we do activities where, and because they're all starting to teach, like, use, be a difficult student, do this, and then, like, watch. And then, and then I'm ignoring that person, but I watch the teacher very closely, just like I would an improv scene to see what the natural reactions are mm-hmm. so that I can help point that out. So they have to go through all of that, and then they have to TA with me, and then I start to, you know, like, do the same thing of like transition from one over and then they get their own class. Mm-hmm. So we have a teacher right now who he loves and perhaps so much. But some of the feedback I have received from students is that sometimes he'll be like, Oh, what I would have liked what I would have done in a scene. And it's and it's because he's new. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's one of those things where I go back then and I have to coach him through. It's not what even if that's not what you mean, like the wording of like I would have done in the scene is not something as a teacher, I feel like you should be saying to your student, like, it's, yeah. here's what I was seeing in the scene, here's, you know, what, depending on what your outcome of that day is or that exercise, let's try this for that and talk about how that feels versus, oh, I would have said this or I would have done that. Well, that's because your experience and your lens is what drove you to that, mm-hmm. not because of, you know, if someone's clearly blocked, you, you blocked, here's how you do that, right, versus, oh, I would have this famous person as your funny thing, you know, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I don't do funny stuff, but I'm just mm-hmm. a terrible example. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely, I feel like it's definitely the art form of itself and learning that it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And that's another big piece um, I find is that as a teacher, you really have to be self-aware and really remove yourself from the student's journey. Yeah. Because otherwise, like you said, you can run into the risk of, like, trying to shape them into who you are as a player. Mm-hmm. 
but it, they have to have the room to find out who they are as a player. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I remember Armando used to say to me, "Don't don't be on a crusade for people." Um, and I think that that can come in the form of either working hard to try to get people to play the way that you would play, which is a mistake, or sometimes you just want them to do well so badly that you end up spending an inordinate amount of time kind of guiding them and holding their hands and offering them choices. And there comes a certain point where it's like you kind of got to throw the person in the water and let them figure it out. Right. I mean, improv is so much... You don't know how to do a good scene unless you've done several bad scenes. Yeah. 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 And and I think, like, as a teacher, you do want to minimize the bad scenes. Bad scenes are instructive. Yeah. Um, and bad shows are instructive. But I think you learn a lot more from the good scenes than from the bad scenes. Um, the, the, the thing I, I... Students, it's a very, like, natural, understandable thing. But, but people want to learn simple, discrete... Um, repeatable solutions to problems so they just kind of want to be told what to do all the time and they want to troubleshoot all these different scenarios of, of like well how do I cope with this and how do I do this and how do I do that you want that sense of, of being able to be prepared for everything right and um, I, I think with good scenes you learn um, just what it feels like to be alert to a scene, what it feels like when it's easy, and you can kind of remember that feeling and start to encourage yourself to, to kind of put yourself in that state of mind. I don't know. It, you can learn a lot of concrete things from bad work. From good work, you learn a little bit more of, like, how to stay out of your own way a little bit. Right. Not overcomplicate it by looking for the answers to everything. Yeah. So, as a teacher, I, I try to set people up to succeed. I try to break things down into, um, like, simple, easily achievable tasks. You, you do kind of trick people, in a way, into having really good scenes. I think it's much better to get people get people to do something well first before they realize what they just did that was really well. That makes sense. And then you point it out, and then you help them to attach the vocabulary to the experience that they just had. Whereas if you begin by kind of outlining what the goals are and and what my expectations are, and this is what we're going to try for, you have people doing an imitation of what they assume you want them to be doing. Right. And um, I don't want my students to be that self-conscious before they start anything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know? Uh, I think it's got to be their experience first, and then you're able to um, guide them to a little bit more of a self-awareness to what experience they just had. Yeah. But you want them to remember that good stuff and remember those good feelings and remember how easy it can be. So are you currently teaching leveled classes? Mm -hmm. So what are you currently teaching? I teach levels two, three, four, and... uh, And, like, upper level, like, conservatory elective classes. But level three is, like, my main... My main class. What's level three considered? Level three would be Harold. Okay, so you te- so I teach Harold. Oh, we could talk all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you? Oh, man, I have so many questions that may not make it into the podcast about teaching Harold. Um, do you, is that your favorite class, or is that just the one you teach the most? Mm, not really. It's the okay. one I teach the most. Yeah. Um, I it's so funny. I tend to for a very long time. I loved teaching level one mm-hmm. because there was. A, so much growth like they would literally come in with nothing and leave with all this new stuff Mm -hmm. and a little selfishly I was like yeah 
I know, right? And then it got to the point where I was like, I don't want to watch another one of these scenes. Yeah. So I had to step myself back from level one a little bit. And then I had some guilt because uh, because I created my curriculum and I've been the only one teaching my curriculum for four years. I know I'm the best at my curriculum and now they're not getting me. So I had to, I had to like work through that a little bit of like, mm-hmm. no, they're going to be okay mm-hmm. and stuff. And Harold, I enjoy Harold also because it's the same thing. They didn't have a vocabulary before, and there's a clear learning uh, after of, like, we now know a Harold. Mm-hmm. Whereas in just, like, a scene work class, you're just sludging through it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like, oh, my God, stop, you know. So I tend to like the classes where uh, there's a clear beginning oh, and sure. the end. Yeah. The curriculum then for Magnet, was that created and given to you? Do you have leeway with the curriculum that's given to you? Yeah, we have lots. It, okay. it was originally developed by Armando. Okay. And then it's kind of... Um, we've been teaching it now since like 2005. So as the, we've had more people come through and as the theater's grown, we've kind of like reshaped it a little bit. Okay. Like originally our curriculum was level one intro, level two uh, intro long form, level three was uh, improv review and then level four was like the final class where you're like basically preparing to audition for house teams okay um and that was just because we had a a much smaller student body back then and all the students who we had had already trained elsewhere right so it was a little bit of kind of getting back to basics and then rebuilding up to kind of like our ethos about like what makes a Harold work really well, and then prepping people to learn how to be on teams and learn how to kind of um, how to kind of have control over their own shows. But as more and more people came through, we had to kind of grow it and mutate it around. So it's a little bit of like Armando's plan. Rick has had a lot of input. Peter McNerney, who who runs our like upper level program, okay. he's had a lot of input. Amy Morrison, who's the school director, she has a lot of input, and you kind of learn stuff from like the teacher's experience. Okay. So, our, our program is based on going from level one, which is just intro to basic skills, all the way up to level four, which is we offer a variety of different level fours that are all different long forms. Okay. So you get to study with different teachers and, and kind of focus specifically on a different form, okay. and you're encouraged to take multiple classes. Um, uh, you learn different styles, different approaches. Um, and then between that is like the basics of long form, the Harold. We kind of treat the Harold as, as the kind of um, uh, Rosetta Stone of long form. Yeah, that's you know? me too. Right. Um, and then we have the conservatory program, which is a little bit more focused on advanced skills, focused on people who are aiming to maybe have a career in comedy. Okay. Um, so you kind of know what students are expected to know when they enter the next level and you kind of have that as like a goal of you know okay if I'm if I'm doing a level two class by the end of these eight weeks they should be familiar with um beats they should be familiar with a variety of different opening games they should have at least an introductory taste of group games their scene work skills should be pretty pretty competent they should you should be able to trust that these are going to be solid first beats that that they'll find something smart for second beats. So you kind of know what you want them to walk away from. How you get there is 
pretty much left to you to figure nice. out. Okay. So, so the teachers are given a lot of latitude That's to have awesome. their own have their own approach. Wow. Okay. So there's there's two things, right? Because you also teach workshops offsite. So mm-hmm. you so like I think it's really helpful for people to hear both because there's. Um, so there's classroom management in a level, mm-hmm. and there's classroom management in a workshop, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times they can be treated differently. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully I'll remember to come to both <laughs> as we go through this. Yeah. But uh, just, uh, I'm, again, I'm very much a tools person. I think that what ha- helps people who are teaching for the first time who have no real mentors and stuff are things like understanding that there is a such thing as a classroom management. And I call it just the typical classroom setting uh, setup of like, everyone sort of files in and does their thing and then we get in our circle and then from our circle we go to warm-ups and then from warm-ups we go to scenic exercises and then we work on whatever the goals of the day and then we wrap up is that essentially the classroom like set up in your level classes yeah more or less yeah. yeah okay so do you guys have rules about like other than absences is there would you hold somebody back yeah yeah okay so what are those conditions um you have to show uh, basic competence at like the the skills that we expect you to be familiar with by the end, end of the class. And are you provided a rubric for that, or is it just yeah, you like... use your own judgment? Okay. More or less. But if someone consistently, like if I have a student who by the end of a level two class still is like completely lost in second beats and and uh, just like can't consistently picks the wrong thing to heighten. Um, I'll talk with that person, and we'll probably encourage them to repeat the level. Because, okay. Because I know it's going to lead to a lot of headache in level three. Right. And so that's another thing I think that um, we are encouraged to yes and and be collaborative, and then we have to have a hard confrontational conversation, which isn't necessarily confrontational, but we know there's going to be stakes to it of mm-hmm. like a real life, hey, so you're not doing well. Mm-hmm. So um, I think... How do you? I think it's really helpful for other people to hear how you approach that conversation. Mm-hmm. Of hey, I don't think you're ready for the next level. Uh, that can be tough, um, and I am a particularly bad person at that because <laughs> I hate confrontation. Um, um, but generally, when you have to, it will be a thing of first. You don't want to wait till the end of the class to tell someone you're not passing them. I give people the benefit of the doubt, so I don't. I don't try to correct everything, every mistake I see. I want to give a couple of weeks at least to start to notice someone's patterns. And, and you may notice that, like, everybody has a bad day. Or you may notice that somebody consistently screws up in a certain kind of situation, but they don't screw up in other kinds of situations. Um, but if you, if you kind of notice that someone's, like, missing the mark pretty regularly or, or having a problem listening or, or just, like, not grasping it... Um, you may start off by like reaching out to them and, and arranging a time to kind of talk and check in about their experience of the class and sort of let them know that you're noticing a little bit of like struggle with these things and kind of get their input on it and then maybe give them a little note of like I'd like you to work on this and here's where here's where I think um, help will be needed and let's check in again you know at some point and then you give them a couple of weeks to work on that. And then, um, you know, if they improve, I think it's a good idea to pull them aside and just be like, hey, I see you taking the notes. That's great. Um, and if they don't improve, a, a, yeah, then you have this, like, difficult conversation of um, more or less, like, I know you're working really hard, but I, I think that in the next level class, you know, you're not going to be given the same amount of time to kind of break things down and, and work on them individually. You're going to be kind of expected to, like, 
have to move a little quicker with the stuff, and I think that you would uh, do better to work on it here in an environment that you're comfortable with. I'll frame it sometimes, too, as like, you know, the first time around learning a curriculum, it feels like so much to keep track of that you can always feel like you're like just above water. Um, so it's not a bad idea to repeat classes periodically because now that you're familiar with the curriculum and you kind of know what we're doing, you can actually relax into it and, and enjoy the experience rather than work really hard to kind of um, show your work to the teacher, you know, right. prove it to the teacher. So I'll try to frame it, you know, in sort of terms like that, but it, it's rarely an easy conversation. Has anyone ever pushed back and been like, I don't care, I think I'm doing great? Not really. I, I've actually had more of the opposite. I, more often than not, I have students coming to me saying that they want to They want to repeat the level, they don't feel comfortable moving on. I, m- far more often than me telling someone they can't move on, I will... Uh, I will try to encourage people to move forward. Yeah. Uh, on the rare occasion where I have students who I really don't think should be moving on, they usually don't anyway. They usually become so frustrated with me Yeah. that they just never bother signing up for the next yeah. level class. Yeah. We also we have a system in place at Magnet where we will red flag people. If someone's like, it's more for behavioral issues, mm-hmm. um, but we will also communicate to our school director if we feel like someone's really struggling. Okay. Um, she'll be alerted to keep an eye out for it, and she'll check in with us again to see like how did they do by the end of the class? Okay. Is it can they can they register for the next one or not? So, okay. you know, we'll, we'll have those conversations. Have you ever had to ask a student to leave class during class? Um, no, but good. Uh, but uh, students have left class during class, and I've been relieved. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, confrontation with people is not my strong suit. But yeah, it's it's difficult, and not. I feel like, well, at the very least, our intention is never to walk into class and be like, "I can't wait for a confrontation today." Right? Mm-hmm. We're all here to do it. We're making up scenes. Like that's what we're here to do. Yeah. Hopefully, no one's walking in being like, "I am ready for a fight." You're hoping to see the best in people. You're hoping for people to be generous and and decent to each other, and and. You're hoping for people who want to be there and who, who are bringing, you know, intelligence and consideration of others. Every now and again, you get someone who, like, has something to prove or, right. or um, I don't know, they're going through some kind of, like, personal issues. Every now and again, I've got people who are, like, struggling with, uh, with like, social anxiety and, and are, are kind of using the class as a way to kind of practice right. um, coping with their anxieties. Which I'm fine with up until a point, and there comes a point where you're kind of using this class inappropriately, um, and those are tough conversations. Right. I've had I've had people walk out of my classes. I, I I've had people show up late and been disrespectful, and I've like called them out on like, um, please sit down, please give your attention to this scene right now. We will discuss this on the break, um, but do not interrupt again. And uh, they've just, like, walked out of the room and never come back. And it's like, okay, good riddance to you then. Right. This is not the place for you right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, so a lot of, I I find that a lot of the behavioral stuff isn't people being malicious. It's just they're, um, they're just unaware and I live in the South, so that's a different situation, right? So you guys are in a city that's, pretty liberal and mm-hmm. and you and and so um it was interesting in uh one of the workshops yesterday someone's like uh, the teacher was like go ahead and introduce in the pronouns you use and mm-hmm. 
And um, in a lot of the smaller communities, people wouldn't even know yeah, sure. what that is and stuff. Yeah. So how um, so how do you handle when something comes up in a scene that's significantly like, and it's not necessarily intentional, but it's like it definitely has under you know pinning of like racial and, and misogyny or you know anti um, like homophobic and stuff like that. How do you handle that? It depends. Um, I mean, I make the expectations in the class really clear at the very beginning of class of, of kind of what we consider to be intolerable stuff and anything hateful or mean-spirited towards anybody is, is you know, um, un- unwelcome. Um, usually when stuff comes up like that, my experience has been it usually just comes from kind of ignorance or or this person is feeling so anxious about their scene that something just kind of blurts out because they're just like not, they're in like a panic mode. Um, rarely does it seem to come from like a genuinely disrespectful place. Right. And uh, I'll usually stop it mid-scene. I, I won't let the scene go on. Okay. Uh, I'll stop it when it happens and encourage them to like change the choice. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of talk about like, Here's why. Here's why I think I, I I will never be like you're offensive right now, but I will be like, you know, I think that that you can make a smarter move there. I, I think that that's the kind of move that, if you look at your scene partner, you can see that it kind of is making them feel a little unwelcome in their scene, and and you may find that it alienates your audience, and we have a hard time enjoying your character right now. It, it, it sort of depends. You got to use your judgment in the moment of it. A couple of times, I've stopped a scene and begun what's turned into like an hour-long conversation about stuff. Right, I have too. <laughs> yeah, um, which is a, you know, it, 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 I'm not crazy about those right. conversations, but um, it's pretty interesting to have them. It's a pretty actually, it's a pretty enlightening time to be practicing comedy, um, because I think people are. It, it's not just. I think in the worst light, you can see it as like, oh, you got to be politically correct now, and you got to be sensitive to everybody. But I think that that's the stupid way of thinking about it. A, a much clearer way of thinking about it is um, uh, we actually have to be thinking comedians. And it's not thinking because I don't want to get in trouble. It's thinking because um, I want to be doing the smartest, kindest, sharpest comedy I can, and I want my comedy to be about... Um, to have a point of view to it right? and to not just be like stupid and at other people's expense or, or whatever right. it is. And so the very fact that that's a pretty regular conversation now that people have, I think is very interesting. Yeah. I also think it's interesting because sometimes people are like, well, I was just being ironic. I'm like, irony and satire work really well in the written. Yes. And you can do it. A satire l- does not work in improv. No, it does not. And so it's having that conversation and explaining that to them. And then like, I don't understand. It's like, well, I don't, I'm not, you know, it, when you write, you can edit, and you're, you've got a focus, and you've got a point of view, and you don't have a partner standing across from you. Yeah, that's frequently what I'll talk about, too. It, it, when something's written and something comes up that's a little dicey, we'll cringe, but we'll also assume that, okay, there may be a point to this. I'll let this go a little bit more because this person chose this. Right. Um, um, so there may be something that they may be, they may be pushing me to have an uncomfortable experience for some kind of payoff later. Whereas in improv, it, we just feel like, oh, God, we, we've broken trust with the audience. Right. And on, like, a written thing where you have control over it, in improv, now the rest of your team also has to be embarrassed with you. Right. And it's a very ungenerous thing to do with your team. Yeah. I, I also talk a lot about, um, 
you know, well, how come you can say this, but you can't do this? And how come we can do this? And, you know, I'll talk about a lot about how, like, oh, nothing... You can kind of do whatever you want on a stage, but there are certain moves that come at a much higher cost, and you got to be prepared to pay the price for that cost. And, you know, know that if you're going to invoke something that's going to really make people uncomfortable, you may not have the time to release the tension that you've just created. Right. Furthermore, you know, a, a lot of comedy is about... Um, I use the kind of metaphor of, like, you know, the tickle monster when you're a little kid. You know, you laugh at being tickled. And part of the laugh is because on the one hand, you have this person who's approaching you like a monster. And on the other hand, you know that you're perfectly safe. Right. Um, and how that kind of stays with comedy sort of throughout your life. A, a lot of comedy is about we're kind of conjuring some monsters into this kind of shared space. We're taking a look at these monsters in, in the light uh, of a theater in the circle where we're all kind of safe and protected, where we can kind of look at our own fears and our own insecurities. And the thing that protects it is we know that we're safe and we know that these monsters we're looking at are in quotations. So the quotations, you know, communicate to us that this is not real, this is not a person really aiming to make us, you know, feel hurt or whatever it is. But the thing to think about is who's making those quotations. Right. And that's something a lot of people don't think about. They just sort of think, well, I was joking. I was being ironic. Right, but you're 6'4", you're a white male, and you were saying you're going to beat the shit out of somebody. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. out of your out of your 5-foot female scene partner right. who was playing your wife in this scene. Right. Yeah. So now you're putting these quotations on, but that doesn't really cut it. Right. Because it doesn't make us feel like... You can't represent someone else's experience for them. Right. You can't represent the externals of someone else's experience for them. And if you try to do that, it makes you look like a fool. Right. And we don't laugh at you. We don't enjoy you. We look down on you. Right. We think less of you. Right. Don't be the fool. Right. You know? Um, I think it's important. And I rarely get people pushing back with, like, censorship. Yeah. Literally. I, I see that shit a lot more in media of people trying to drum up the argument. They right. always want comedians to, like, be part of the argument. But in real life, <laughs> in real life, I don't see people pushing back a hell of a lot because it, it's not this thing of, like, censorship versus freedom of speech. It's this thing of, like, you got to use your judgment and your taste and your integrity. Right. It's something that I think improvisers are guilty of pretty consistently. A lot of people will lean on yes and as this kind of, like... Um, in this permissive way where it's like I'm free of responsibility for anything that I say or do because I have to yes and everything because I have to be supportive some people take advantage of that I think most people in my experience it's not that they take advantage of it so much as they just don't counterbalance the idea that yes and is a tool that we use and on the other side of that balance is you have to bring your own taste and integrity and judgment to the table if you're not doing that you can't consider yourself to be an artist with any of this because, you know, your artistry has to do with your sense of selectiveness. Right. You have to make choices. And um, that's compatible with yes and in the sense of I'm going to yes and certain things, but I also will know, okay, this is territory that I should not be talking about. Right. Um, this is not true to my experience. I have nothing to say here. Right. So it's not my job to initiate this scene. Right. I'm not going to initiate this, like, arrogant, 
I'm not going to initiate the scene about how hard it is to be a woman just walking around the street at night right. because that's not my place to initiate that right. scene. Um, and I can't do it to be ironic or whatever because who's making the quotation marks? Right. I, I, to other people's perception, I am the monster. So if the monster makes the quotation marks, other people just see it as you're creating an opportunity to... Um, abuse your audience basically and abuse other performers yeah and you can say when someone's doing that you know it immediately yeah you just sense this there's a kind of like deadness in their eyes that they're working out whatever psychological issues they have in a room full of people who have to take it because yes and yeah yeah and also if um, if we're charging for comedy shows. Please don't do that. Go see a therapist, uh, right? Like it's just uh, yeah, some, you some, know. some people use it as a cheap performance, right? Yeah. Um, so, do you? I have people who will. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of you know how. Like my default, I'm always pushing against my default. My 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 default is always to be like yeah on the world. Like oh, I'm not. Everyone's like oh you're always so positive. I'm like I'm fighting against my default. I'm not naturally positive. Uh, or maybe I am, and I've fought it so long that that's who I've become. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always ask, do you think there's such a thing as a difficult student, or do you think it's just a matter of how you communicate with no, your students? No, they're difficult students. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And how? what is your definition, then, of a difficult student? A difficult student for me is someone who um, does not want to learn anything in this room. They just want to prove themselves in this room. They have something to prove. And so they check out when notes are given, they check out in their scenes, they disrespect other people, they just generally are not attentive and have no interest in being attentive. There are people who struggle with attentiveness but who are trying their best. Right. And then there are people who aren't attentive because this is just another opportunity for them to show off how great they are to people and they check out the moment you're not giving them the applause that they want and I have no patience for that person do you um if you're dealing with that student do you have a conversation with them on the side or do you just kind of like and in your classroom maybe big enough and be like i know that this guy's not going to take my notes so i'm just going to sort of focus on his scene partner or her scene partner right now and i try to give people the benefit of the doubt for the most part so again i'll like monitor a student's behavior over okay. time I, I if i see someone doing something that even begins to feel shitty i'll cut it off pretty early okay um, cut scenes quickly and, and I'll always give notes about the best part of a scene okay. and I'll always give a person the benefit of the doubt and assume good intentions and okay. give notes I, I, I try to kind of nudge people with my notes I rarely call people out with notes I okay. will usually I will usually begin by looking at what's interesting in the scene and that will open up a little bit of a dialogue about how we can make more of it or what that sort of implies um Sometimes I'll kind of trick people into seeing more in their own scenes than they may have intended. Okay. Just to get them used to the idea that someone's watching this very closely. Right. And therefore I have to I have to be smart up here. I have to I have to kind of respect what we're doing and not just think that it's like a bunch of like dumb jokes or whatever. But if I see someone kind of consistently not getting the message, um yeah, I don't see any point in confronting that student with everybody. I'll pull right. them aside after class or on the break and, and, and be like, hey, we seem to be struggling. What's the problem here? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, you try to give like a warning of like, that's not welcome in the class, man. It's, right. it's a disrespectful thing and it's we've laid out really clearly what we expect of, of everybody in right. terms of attitude and behavior 
And if you keep it up, you're, you're, you're violating the contract you had with us. Right. You know, we can't tolerate that. Okay. Yeah. Luckily, that doesn't it come up that them. often. Um, with workshops now, so, like, in the structured level of classes, you have this, like, okay, it doesn't matter where everybody is because level, like, you're going to have a beginning and an end to where you need them to be. Mm-hmm. But in a workshop situation, so, like, we're at Improv Utopia this weekend, we've got people who came to camp because their wife's into improv and they've never done improv before mm-hmm. to people who, uh, you know, have, who uh, own and operate theaters but love to sit in on classes, right? So mm-hmm. how, as, as a teacher for you, how do you shift or prep your lessons plans knowing that you're gonna, you don't know what you're getting? I usually um, start with the person who I assume has never improvised before and has no idea what's going on. Okay. And uh, I will try to um, design exercises that that person will be able to grasp very easily. Okay. Um, that's kind of my foundation. Thing. Okay. Um, and I believe that the most experienced improvisers have a lot to benefit from really basic things. Oh, yes. <laughs> Um, so I, I usually design everything based on really simple, okay. really simple ideas that everyone can kind of grasp and that everyone would be able to do. I, I want everyone in the room to succeed. Okay. Um, so I, I kind of start with the assumption that I'll probably have a couple of people who have like never seen improv before, and uh, we'll give them things to do that you don't need to have improv experience to do. It's just like talk to another person. Okay. You know? um, um, but I'll be sure to be kind of paying close attention to what people are doing and I'll be sure to target some of my notes more specifically to people who I feel like are looking for a little bit more um, uh, uh, critical insight. Yep. So I think uh, the hallmark of a really good teacher is someone who can differentiate their notes yeah. in a classroom and but also have never seen that classroom before and they yeah. can read that room real fast. Yeah, you can and, tell pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and I don't know necessarily, I mean I have an academic background and I've Part of that was teaching and instructional design in college, so I feel like that just, I don't know how to codify um, how, to, how to just read that. Like, I instinctively am able to read that room mm-hmm. and then differentiate notes. I don't know how to codify Yeah, I don't either. either. And that's, I, I don't know if that's one of those things that you just have to teach for a long time. This was, uh, yeah, I think so. This was actually, like, a really cool thing about getting to, like, shadow with Armando when I started teaching because uh, apart from just, like, time management, uh, um, which right. He, he, you know, he he he's he has like a genius for time management in classes, and so like I learned a little bit of like how he thinks through. But apart from that, the biggest thing I learned from him was after class he would be like, "Okay, here's why I didn't give a note." Right. Okay, you saw that person do that. Here's why I didn't mention it. Here's why that person got a note. And so it, it started to kind of train me to not only think about what notes people need but when people need those notes that's a big one right because not um that's something that you have to be able to read a person and be like that person's not ready for that note or there's seven things going on but if i shift this one thing these six other things will line up Mm -hmm. so i'm only going to give the note Mm -hmm. on this thing yeah you you you, so you can see if you give somebody a note and they like shut down the face turns blood red. Right. Their scene work afterwards is like really inhibited or wonky or whatever. And it's like, okay, I'm not giving this person another note for at least three weeks. Right. Um, 
you know, unless they do something egregious, unless they, they do something that puts someone else in harm's way or they do something that's really insulting, um, barring that, I'm going to look to, like, celebrate them where they are. Right. So I, I want to make a special note about, like, okay, I'm not noting them, but any good thing they do in a scene, I'm going to slip a compliment in. Right. Not so much to make them feel better, though that's part of it, but mostly to call attention to the little things that they're doing well so that they start to have a vocabulary for it. Yeah. So a, lot of, a lot of improvisers just are not aware of what they do well because they're so busy thinking about what else and thinking about what they're getting wrong that they don't recognize what they're doing right. So you got to kind of like, you make those adjustments and you're like, okay, for this person, even just acknowledging their scene partner's idea is like a small victory for them. And so you call it out. You give a little thing of like, hey, take a look at take a look at what Charlie did. You see how like, you see how when Charlie uh, implied that they were a married couple and then Charlie validated that by calling her honey later in the scene? Right. You see how that like cemented that relationship right. and made it really clear? Isn't that nice? So you kind of celebrate like the little things that they do. And yeah. then maybe after you see them kind of loosen up a little bit, then in three weeks it'll be like, all right, I'll try another little note. Right. Maybe I won't frame it as a note. Maybe I'll frame it as like... Um, I challenge people. I'm like, you know, I would love to... I'll, I'll do a couple things. I'll be like, that was a really great scene. I was really enjoying it. Can we just go back and try something? I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Mm-hmm. Just let's try it, and then we're going to compare both and see what felt better for you. Mm-hmm. So that way they don't, know, they don't even know that like, I have an expectation. I yeah. just want to see if there's a difference or not. And I, a lot of times we're like, I don't even know if there's going to be a difference. Let's find out. Yeah, right? I, I do it like that, too. Yeah. I also frame it a lot of times of, of um, I'll be like, pause. Uh, try uh, try taking a sip of the beer. Right. And usually there'll be notes of things that they're like already doing that they're stopping themselves from right. or things that they have already done in the scene and then forgot about. So right. I'll try to nudge them back to choices. Yeah. Um, so that they see that there's like more potential in the choice than they realized at first. Yeah. And that can be a nice way too because then they don't see it so much as like, oh, the teacher told me what to do. It's like, oh, that's what I was doing. Right, right. And I think that's important for them too. I also think it's important though to feel you can correct something when you need to. So I was shadowing, um, so because we have a few, uh, like, newer teachers, I'm going in and just, like, shadowing just to make sure, like, I come and observe. Mm-hmm. And, make, and I just, I joined in on the warm-ups, mm-hmm. and, I, and I let him join. I let him leave. And then, uh, um, to me, the simplest games show a lot about a class and mm-hmm. about people. And they were still, and it was, like, the last, it was last week of class, and they just still did not have a good rhythm of past the class. Mm-hmm. You can tell a lot about a group by past the clap. Right? So <laughs> I know. No one's like, it's so much about past the clap. And so I was watching them, and I was in, I was with them, and, I, and I'm observing all my, like, teacher things are on fire. And um, the teacher, he was like, oh, okay, great, da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I'm just going to, um, uh, can I, and, I, and I said to him, like, can I make a few uh, suggestions about what we can do? You know, because I don't want to, like, also be like, hey, I'm better than your teacher because I don't want, you know, he's nervous and I'm in the room anyways. And he's like, oh, sure, of course. And so I corrected them on a few things. I'm like, this is not about speed. This is not about fucking each other over because a lot of them were, like, looking one way and then going to the other way. And I'm like, oh, that should have been curved mm-hmm. the very first time we introduced this exercise. Or they would um, look like they're clapping, but then, you know, just like a lot of, like, I think this is funnier versus I'm here to support because pass the clap should be about supporting and right. I yeah. think one of the things to pass the clap is like people get bored with it. Yeah. Um, 
you can there's so many things you can learn from Pass the Clap. Pass the Clap is about decisiveness. It's about clarity. Right. It's about looking in people's eyes to notice who is intending what now. Right. It's about awareness of of um, uh, who has had a turn, awareness of who's being selfish and, and when you need to kind of spread the love right. around the room a little bit. Um, and a lot of it will come from, you'll see people just like get bored easily because the game's so simple that they'll start to be funny with it. Right. And to me, if you're going to get bored with the past the clap, and I, I have no problem making a note of this in class, if you're going to get bored with past the clap, you're not going to be able to sustain the attention for even the most basic group game. Um, because right. you get bored so easily with simple things, and you think that you're going to be better with complex things, but you're not. Right. You're going to be horribly confused by complex things. Right. So part of what we're doing with this game is we're learning how to maintain um, awareness, attention, dignity, presence, even when we're asked to do really simple things. Right. Because ultimately, improv is made up only of really simple things. And if we get really good and keep ourselves really refined at being great at the simple things all the time that will surprise ourselves with the complex things. But you cannot check out on this. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how the... Yeah, I, I, it's why every class starts with that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made a couple corrections. I was like, I need you guys to make good eye contact. I need you guys to wait for your partner. I just made a couple corrections. Mm-hmm. And within those couple corrections, by the time we were done. So after class, because that's the same thing we would do of like, okay, great, um... Here's why I did this. I would. That's what I would do when I was when he was TAing. So after I observed and stuff, I was like, "We should, let's meet so we can go over, you know, give notes so I can hear how you're feeling as a teacher and then things I saw." And one of the notes was, um, "You can correct the students, mm-hmm. even though this is a level one and you want them to love the improv and you want them to fall in love with it and and because he loves he also loves it and you we all want people to be so in love with, with it the way we are that they want to just do this for the rest of life too." Mm-hmm. You can still correct them. Mm-hmm. And so if you really know how past the clap should look, you as a teacher, even though they're new to this, can correct them. But you can be clear about it and why about it and, and simple about it. And so I think a lot of new teachers also sometimes don't correct what they could correct. Yeah. Because they feel like they're going to hurt or break somebody right. when you're not. Yeah. 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 I, and it's all in your tone about things right too. yeah but uh, I, I agree with that it, it can feel devastating sometimes when you like when you step in because you feel like you're um, uh, ruining somebody's spontaneous ability to come to their own conclusions right but they need to be nudged yeah you need to nudge people periodically for sure yeah um, do you have a, a philosophy like a philosophy you work from for teaching I try to see the best in what people are doing okay I assume that if you focus, um, if you give nurturing attention to to a person's gifts, that a lot of their mistakes will naturally fall by the wayside. If you hyper-focus on correcting their mistakes, for every mistake you correct, another mistake is just going to pop up again because they're going to be dependent on on you and you don't want that you want them to eventually become independent and yeah I I, I think integrity is kind of the word I want to kind of guide people towards their own sense of integrity their own sense of humor but their own sense of kind of integrity in the sense of like oh I'm already kind of whole I'm not I'm not a broken person right um and, and my job is to take my wholeness and connect it with someone else's wholeness so that our mutual wholeness 
creates this surprising thing that that shares both of our DNA, but is more than each of us individually. And for me, a lot of that is it has to do with encouragement, but not bland positive. It's not just yay. It's not just applauding for everything. Right. It, 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 I try to be very thoughtful about yeah. how I encourage people, and and I try to because I, I teach almost exclusively long form. Mm-hmm. Um, I will rarely talk about what an improviser does. I'll talk about what the character does. Yeah. And I'll try to frame it in a way where I'm calling people's attention to how sophisticated the psychology of this character might be. Right. And sometimes I know that the improviser didn't intend it. But what I'm doing is I'm teaching them... I'm teaching them to assume at all times that um, you're always playing in front of really smart, really perceptive, really well-read, really curious people. So that you don't treat improv like it's good enough to just do whatever jokes come to your mind <laughs> um, well funny and good are two different things absolutely yeah. Um, uh, so yeah I, that's sort of like my, my overall philosophy I try not to approach it as like okay what am I here to fix so much as like what am I here to nurture exactly okay. um, and, and I also see it I think very much in terms of like long game I think of things very much in terms of like growth and and you know, people are going to grow at their own rates, and uh, you got to kind of weed the garden and teach them to recognize the weeds. But you also got to teach them to like water the seeds that are already planted, and, right. and not to overwater either. You got to teach them to just kind of like tend to themselves and tend to each other. Um, so it's a stupid metaphor. It's kind of pretentious, but, but <laughs> I, I try to kind of like teach people how to be their own gardeners a little bit. Okay. And sometimes that means like you got to recognize like what needs tidying up, or you got to like till the soil a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I've given people notes before of like uh, your big thing is I think you just got to read more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I used to have a student every week. She'd learn a new three syllable word. <laughs> Right? Yeah. I'm like, you need to, I don't know what to tell you, yeah. right? Like, I, I, I can't. Um, yeah, or when people are like, well, I don't know pop culture references. Well, do you know who the president is? Well, yeah. you know pop culture. But also, if that's something you really feel is necessary to know for improv, which I don't know if it's necessary for you to know for improv, uh, then make that part of your learning journey. Yeah, I agree. You should you should have at least like a basic intelligence of right. like the stuff that's going to come up a lot. You should at least be familiar with. Right. But like, I, I think of it more as like you want to have an you want to develop an emotional intelligence. Yeah. You want to develop an emotional curiosity about other people. Right. And that means you got to talk to people and you got to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. You gotta you gotta have a, 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 a just a basic. Uh, curiosity about how people operate. Right. Um, so you've been doing this a long time, so what do you do to keep yourself as a teacher sharp? Besides reading? Uh, yeah, I, I read a lot. <laughs> um, I, what do I do to keep myself sharp as a teacher? Um, I try to pay close attention to everyone in the room. It, uh, teaching's exhausting. Yeah. It, because you you are you're watching and remembering everything, um, and you're not only watching, but like there's a part of your mind that's just totally, totally watching, and there's a part of your mind that's also adjusting what we're about to do in ten minutes to 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 address what we're looking at, or completely jettisoning your lesson and your lesson plan, or simplifying or whatever it is. Right. 
um, it's this like weird dance. Yeah. And I finally just trying to keep myself attentive to people is enough to keep it sort of sharp. And I mean, I, I try not to set my lesson plans too much. I, I like to know what we're looking at today and why we're looking at it, but I don't really map out too far ahead of like exactly what we're going to do. And I try to not know exactly what I'm going to say to people. Yeah. For me, I spend a lot of time at the beginning of class getting other people to talk to me about their experience first. And part of that is just to get people feeling comfortable. Like, this class is a dialogue. You're not just here to write my notes down. Right. Um, but part of it is also, I want to learn your language. I want to learn how you're thinking about this so that I can try to shape my thoughts and shape my perceptions to be in your language so that we have a dialogue together rather than just repeating notes. I never, I, I don't have like a laundry list of notes that I repeat over yeah. and over again. I mean, I have concepts that I'm coming back to all the time just because of my own, where I play from. Yeah. But I don't have like, oh, if I see this, this note. Like, I, Me it's, neither. It's every scene is, it's every student is an individual and yeah. I just, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I, I agree with that. And I'm constantly refining those concepts too right. with experience. There are certain things that I used to think were really important that I don't give a shit at all anymore. Right. Um, and vice versa. I, I, I like to constantly experiment with uh, exercises to tweak the language of how I'm setting it up to see how I can simplify it, how I can communicate it more succinctly, how I can kind of get my hands off the wheel. I'm a bit of an over-talker, um, but as much as possible, I want to I, I, I want yeah, to give people the clearest, simplest direction. Right, and I like for them to be up and doing versus me talking, if possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree, even though I fall short of that mark pretty Well, often. I mean, and so it also depends on the class. Like, I, I warn them up front, like, on day, like, when we're about to dive into Harold, I'm like, I'm going to talk a lot today, because yeah. I'm going to give you all the stuff, and then we're going to just be keep looking at this week after week. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say up front, like, you're going to, I'm going to talk a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, do you, uh, do you have a favorite exercise? No. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It depends. I get bored with exercises. Yeah. I also, if something's boring to me, I won't run it. Right. I have to. It, to me, it has less to do with the exercise. I, I and I don't know exactly how to. I don't have like the language for this exactly. I have to believe in what we're doing. Yeah, I can't fake that either. I can't be like, oh, I'm teaching this because this really. I, yeah, I've I've also cut exercises out because uh, I'm just like I am tired of teaching this exercise yeah. and there's got to be something we can get to this another way yeah yeah I, the exercise is much less important than the spirit you bring to it yeah and you can like make up exercises on the spot yeah that are brilliant but only brilliant in that particular moment yeah if, if your heart's not in the game no game is going to teach you anything if your heart's not in it right the game, the game in a certain sense just provides a little bit of a context for you to have a heart to heart with the people that you're trying to communicate with do you have any advice for people who are looking to be teachers or who are new to teaching? Probably, I would say look for the best. Look for what people are already doing that's great. Learn to be as articulate about what you love as you are articulate about what you think can stand improvement. Because a lot of people can talk for hours about problems, and then when it gets to like what was good about something, they just go, it was funny, it was good, I liked it. Right. And it's totally useless. You have to develop right. a, a language... It's on you as a teacher to learn to be very... You have to be a connoisseur for human behavior. Ah, it's so fucking... It's the most pretentious <laughs> thing. But you, you have to be like a little bit of like a wine connoisseur in that sense of it's not good enough to just be like, oh, that was funny. You have to really recognize what's uniquely funny about something or, or, or even beyond funny, what's uniquely giving you joy. Right. 
sometimes the things that give me joy and change are the simplest things. Right. They're not even funny. They're just so simple and so straightforward that I feel like refreshed. Yeah. It. it um, I, I. Mark Rollins talks about this about like setting rehearsals for plays, and he talks about how his problem with like setting things in rehearsal is that. You get a representation of of a problem that people figured out months ago, and so every night you see a play, it's like you're being served leftovers. Whereas for him, what he finds exciting is you got to refashion it every single night. It, you, when you go see a play, you want to feel like you're being served fresh ingredients. Yeah. I love that, and I agree with that. And um, I think to a certain extent, it's very easy to see problems and very easy to see what people are getting wrong, and very easy to have your own pet theories about how to improve it. You want to be a little bit of a connoisseur about what's wonderful about people's work, and that's beyond just what's funny about it. It's it where are the fresh ingredients in what someone's doing, and you want to be articulate about it. You want to be able to not only identify it but to point it out in a way that you get them excited for it too. Right. And that means you got to practice being considerate towards other people. Right. You got to you got to practice looking for it, and you got to practice being able to to lead people to understand what they just did. I think that's really important. Yeah. Where can people find you if they'd like to find you, if you want to plug yourself at all? I have a pretty minimum online presence. But, uh, <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. If you're in New York, uh, I, as of summer 2018, I perform a weekly show on Sundays with Rick Andrews at the Magnet Theater at 7.30 called Cornfeld and Andrews. Um, uh, I'm on Facebook, but I generally <laughs> don't respond to anybody on Facebook. Fair enough. Um... Uh, yeah, you can hear, uh, there's like old episodes of a podcast I used to host about improv on the Magnet, the Magnet Theater podcast, and, and um, I write for a show called The Truth, you can hear episodes that I wrote for there. But yeah, if you're in New York, come come on by, I'm always around the Magnet. Awesome, thank yeah. you so much. My pleasure, thanks for, thanks for talking with me.